This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Test Tube, The David Packman Show, The Diane Rehm Show, Dan Savage, This Week in Blackness, NPR, All In with Chris Hayes, and Politics and Prose. And to clarify, we're actually pretty deep into the 21st century. This debate just makes it seem like we're back in the 70s. Don't be fooled. A human rights group found that due to strict abortion laws, a high rate of women in Senegal are killing their newborn children. In some cases, by leaving them in the wild to starve or even be eaten. Due to Senegal's abortion laws, which the UN calls some of the world's strictest, if a woman wants an abortion, she needs three doctors to sign off on the procedure. And those doctors have to determine that having the child would be life-threatening. As a result, Reuters reports that 38% of all women jailed in Senegal were charged with either infanticide or having an illegal abortion, and up to 13% of maternal deaths are due to illegal abortions. And Senegal is just one example of how strict abortion laws can negatively affect a country's population. According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, more than a quarter of the world live in a country with highly restrictive abortion laws, meaning abortions are prohibited or allowed only if it will save the mother's life. And an estimated 47,000 women die per year as a result of unsafe abortions. Many of these happen in areas of the world where abortion laws are the strictest. According to the World Health Organization, more than 97% of abortions in Africa and 95% in Latin America are unsafe. These are two regions where the vast majority of the countries have strict abortion laws. They also have higher rates of abortion by about 10%. Studies show when a country legalizes or liberalizes abortion, things do get better. In 1996, South Africa legalized abortion up to 12 weeks without any restrictions, a change from only allowing it when the women's health was in danger or in cases of rape or incest. As a result, deaths from unsafe abortions dropped by over 90%. Similarly, in Nepal, the number of women admitted to the hospital with complications from unsafe abortions fell drastically after they legalized abortion in 2004. This obviously does not tell the whole story. Even in some countries with legal abortion, women are still unsafe. This is because abortions are being done with unsanitary equipment or by untrained people. There are stigmas attached to abortion that lead some women to find more secretive yet dangerous alternatives. There is also a huge need for education and birth control in many countries. 82% of unwanted pregnancies around the world are from countries where women don't have access to proper contraception, either from lack of knowledge, lack of access, or lack of personal freedoms, namely partners forbidding the use of contraceptives. So while legalizing or liberalizing abortion does help, birth control education and better funding for legal abortion clinics are also widely needed. My body's cold, my guts are twisted steel. And I feel like I'm some kind of Frankenstein Waiting for a shock to bring me back to life But I don't want to spend my time Waiting for lightning to Robert Reich uh, uh, penned a very interesting op-ed where he talks about how right-wing policies are literally killing women, and he points to The Lancet, which uh, has now ranked the U.S. 60th out of 180 countries on maternal death occurring during pregnancy and childbirth. To put it bluntly, 
For every 100,000 births in the U.S. last year, 18.5 women died. That's compared to only 8.2 in Canada and uh, 6.1 in Britain and 2.4 in Iceland. A woman giving birth in the United States is twice as likely to die as a woman in Saudi Arabia or in China. Some will say, well, do you really think that they're tracking the numbers accurately? Fine, forget about Saudi Arabia and China. Ireland, Britain, Iceland, Canada, do we not think they're tracking these numbers accurately? And in 1990, the maternal death rate in the U.S. was 12.4 women per 100,000 births. In 2003, it was up to 17.6, and now it is 18.5. In contrast, the, birth, the death rate uh, in childbirth and pregnancy in other countries has been decreasing. So this is a problem in the U.S. It is not a global systemic problem. Researchers weren't exactly sure why this was happening, but they pointed to two issues. Number one, lack of access to health care. And number two, rising levels of poverty. Some American women are dying during pregnancy and childbirth from health problems that they had before they became pregnant and then, of course, did not receive proper care for. The real problem, in other words, was they didn't receive adequate care before they got pregnant. Combine this with right-wing policies of not expanding Medicaid in many red states across the country and right-wing policies of making birth control, contraception, and even reasonable sex education available to women who probably would choose not to have children if they had access to that educational material and birth control and contraception. We have a direct link, Lewis, between right-wing policies and women that are dying. No doubt. It's incredible. It's incredible to think that there are actually areas like this in this country where we are regressing. Um, it's, it's pretty scary because in many ways we are, we are progressing and we are doing well. But clearly, we have a lot of work to do. The Affordable Care Act, which extends prenatal care to pregnant women. The right-wing House of Representatives votes, what, 30, 40, 45, 50 times at this point to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We have states cutting family planning. It's disgusting, and it is leading to women dying. If we talk about death panels, the fake death panels that are the lie of the year, lack of access to care is, is truly the death panel of this country. Paula, it's good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Diane. Katha, I was fascinated to learn that until after the Civil War, abortion was essentially legal in all states. Well, it was a little bit illegal in New York and Connecticut, I think, but in the rest of the country, it was it was fine. <laughs> um, and this is amazing because people think. Well, before Roe v. Wade, abortion pretty much didn't happen, and afterwards, all hell broke loose. But that's not true for um, the first, uh, you know, 80 years of our history. Abortion was pretty much legal. It was legal when we fought the American Revolution. It was legal when 
George and Martha were married <laughs> when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution. Um, now, if they had wanted to, leg- to say, put a human life amendment in the Constitution, as some anti-choicers want now, they could have done that, but they didn't. That tells you something. And what it tells you is that men were pretty much not caring about what women did. It was messy women's business, and men were well advised to just stay out of it. So one poll says a majority of Americans support Roe v. Wade. Another poll found most people don't actually know what the ruling said, so refresh our memory. Well, yes, that last thing you said is fascinating because everybody talks about Roe, and then you find out that only 62% of the people in the country can tell you what it is, and even fewer among younger people. So everybody is answering pollsters um, as if they know, but actually, as with other poll subjects, they're not so sure. Um, and, you know, when they ask people, you know, do you support the Supreme Court ruling that made abortion, you know, illegal on demand first three months of pregnancy and so forth, people, uh, the major- a solid majority says yes. There is not that much support for let's ban abortion, which I always have to remind people, that's what the anti-choicers want. They, they kind of downplay that a little bit um, because they know it's unpopular, but that's their goal. No abortion, like in Ireland or Nicaragua or El Salvador. Which is where Which it is, is totally completely illegal. illegal. Women are there are women in prison in El Salvador. The women have died uh, in Ireland because they couldn't get a, a, a termination till the, you know, the non-viable embryo or fetus was dead, and they died of Se- uh, Savita Halapanovar was a famous case of that. A few years ago, she died. She died because they wouldn't. Uh, and her miscarriage. And what about doctors in those countries who carry out abortions? Well, in Ireland, uh, you won't probably won't find that because people go to the UK. But doctors are coming around in Ireland. In other countries where abortion is illegal, um, there are more li- illegal abortions than there are here per capita. For example, in Brazil. Um, uh, and there are doctors, if you're a wealthy woman, you can get a termination that's illegal but safe. But if you're a poor woman, you're really out of luck. So in this country, the accessibility, the availability of abortion is going down. It is. And, you know, this is uh, one reason I wanted to write this book was that you know, it sort of has crept up on us, us uh, beginning in states like North Dakota that are not really on the media map um, where there's one clinic. Now there are six or seven states where there's one clinic, um, and one of them is extremely big and uh, populous, Missouri, one clinic, and they've just passed a 72-hour uh, waiting period. And that means if you don't live in St. Louis, you're traveling to St. Louis perhaps from the other end of the state, and you have to find a place to stay for three days. You have to find child care for your children. You have to take time off work. It ratchets up the cost and anxiety, and it places abortion out of reach for many, many women in that state. So how different is that from some, say, five years ago? Well, um, uh, 
there have been a lot of clinic closings. There have been more since uh, 2012 when the Republicans won all those state elections. Um, there have been, you know, hundreds of abortion restrictions have been proposed and more have passed than in, you know, any period before then. And we're really reaching a crisis point in a state like Texas, for example. Two years ago, there were 40 plus clinics. Now there are seven or eight. That's a big difference. There is, you know, huge swaths of Texas that have no abortion access. So, Katha, what you said you want to do with this book is not only to reclaim abortion rights, but to reframe the debate. What's gone wrong with the debate? Well, I think we need to see abortion as a, a sort of normal part of the reproductive lives of women. Um, it's something that has always existed. You know, anthropologists go back 4,000 years and they can find evidence of abortion. There, are abortions, there were abortions in Catholic Europe. There were abortions in tiny villages in Africa where no one has heard of feminism. You know, um, It's part of life. It's part of women trying to have children when they can take care of them and trying to have uh, a life for themselves and it's it's actually good that people plan their <laughs> plan their their families um and since birth control is not perfect and never will be we need to have abortion so that uh families can have the right number of children for them at the time when it's best for them to have those children. Part of what you argue in this book is that the pro-choice movement itself has not been vocal enough, has not somehow presented their positions uh, with the right words. Well, I think the pro-choice movement has become very defensive. Um, and so they've adopted a language that I think they may not realize this is stigmatizing. For example, when you say safe, legal, and rare, you're saying, oh, there's too much abortion. Well, is there too much abortion? There are lots of people who want an abortion that can't have one. The Hyde Amendment uh, prevents, in most states, um, poor women from getting coverage for their abortion, so there are a lot of women who have babies because they can't afford, they don't have $500. Um, but there's also this uh, sort of the abortion is the most terrible decision a woman ever makes. It's the most difficult decision. Oh, it's just so tragic and awful. Well, that's really saying motherhood is the default position for women. A woman should be ready to have a baby whenever a stray sperm gets in there. Um, and, and if she's going to have an abortion, she has to feel really bad about it. Um, but we know that actually most women who have abortions, it's not a difficult decision. Um, they know right away that's what they want to do. And most women have abortions as soon as they can. You know, 90% of abortions take place in the first trimester. Um, and they, the main reason why they take place later is that the women are putting the money and the travel and all the rest of it together. If abortion were more accessible, even more of it would be earlier. Here is a tweet from Holly who says, Since abortion was legal at the founding of the country for 80 years, thereafter, how did women accomplish it? Um, how, how did I don't understand how, how did, did women accomplish abortion 
after it was no longer. Oh, that's a fascinating story. Um, so abortion was made illegal after the Civil War for, because some things came together. One of them was doctors wanted to get gynecology and obst- you know, obstetrical medicine in their own hands away from lay healers and uh, midwives. Um, the other was that women, middle-class white women, were becoming more independent um, as long as see, as long as abortion was something that you just had because you already had ten children, and you were going to die the next time you gave birth, or you know your daughter was uh, pregnant and it was a source of great shame. But as long as women were firmly repressed, it was legal. When women started to get a little more independence, then everybody got upset. I'm a little flabbergasted that the name Jennifer Ann Whalen isn't on everyone's blogs, tongues, lips. I'm surprised that she hasn't become a cause celeb on the left. She's a Pennsylvania single working mom, uh, works in a nursing home, who is going to prison, sent to jail for a year, because when her 16-year-old daughter got pregnant and her 16-year-old daughter uh told her mother that she wanted to get an abortion and her mother told her that she would support her in any choice, decision she decided to make, Jennifer Whalen realized that there was no abortion clinic anywhere near the rural part of Pennsylvania where she lives and got online to research her options and found out about abortion pills. Basically, RU846, the uh, abortion pill that you can go to clinics and have administered to you. It's not the morning after pill. It is an abortion pill. And you can order it online. Uh, it's not legal, Um of course, the sites selling it don't emphasize that point, that it's not legal, but you can order it online. And Jennifer Whalen, single working parent in rural Pennsylvania, where the nearest abortion clinic was 78 miles away, according to Reuters, ordered the pills and administered them to her daughter. And her daughter had complications, cramps and some bleeding. She was miscarrying. That's what the pills induce, miscarriage. And took her daughter to the hospital, and someone at the hospital called the police, and the police called prosecutors, and Jennifer Whalen is going to prison. We have here a case where politicians and anti-choice activists have done all they can to make safe and legal abortions harder and harder to obtain by shutting down clinics, by scaring women away from clinics, by regulating clinics out of existence, and then punishing someone who in this world of scarcity, abortion scarcity, reproductive Choice, scarcity, this inability to easily access safe and legal appropriate abortions, they are coming, turning around and punishing someone for getting what? For getting the abortion that she could get her daughter instead of the optimal abortion that her daughter probably deserved and needed, but she couldn't get because Pennsylvania, like so many states, uh, has regulated abortion nearly out of existence and made it harder and harder to get. Like I said, Reuters noted in their story about Jennifer Whalen's case, that there was an abortion clinic 74 miles away in Harrisburg, and that implied that a safe and legal abortion was just a 90-minute drive away for Jennifer Whalen and her daughter, which is not true. Pennsylvania has a 24-hour wait, 
Pennsylvania has a 24-hour waiting period before a procedure is provided. You actually need to go to the abortion clinic one day and then return the next day, where you will receive state-directed counseling that includes information designed to discourage women from having an abortion. So, state-mandated, usually misleading, lying counseling, and a 24-hour wait. So this wasn't a matter of a 90-minute drive, three hours back and forth to get an abortion. This was a working class, works in a nursing home, probably gets minimum wage or close to it. A working class woman who may or may not have access to a car of her own being told that she needs to spend two days out of town to get her daughter a safe and legal abortion in a clinic. Women like Waylon really can't afford to take two days off work to drive back and forth to a far-off abortion clinic. Women like Waylon and her family usually can't afford to spend the night in a hotel room, so it would have been two days of driving back and forth. And so Waylon, when you think about it, she did the best she could for her daughter under very difficult circumstances. And make no mistake, those circumstances, they are difficult by design. Anti-choice politicians... Those motherfuckers, they have worked to make safe and legal abortions harder and harder to obtain. They make getting a safe and legal abortion, clinic abortion, financially and logistically impossible for poor and working class families like Wayland's. And then those same politicians turn around and punish someone like Wayland for getting her daughter the only abortion that she could get her. And there's this. Wayland doesn't have health insurance. And her daughter didn't have health insurance. So she couldn't get a hospital abortion for her daughter either, according to Reuters. So we have an economic system in our country that impoverishes working people like Waylon and her family and then persecutes them for making the choices that they make under duress. I wrote about Waylon last week, and I've been a little shocked by how little has been written about Waylon. And I'm happy to report that the New York Times is working on a story that's going to come out this week. Uh, Emily Bazelon, terrific writer, just wrote a large piece on abortion pills and clinics that provide them to women in places where abortions are impossible or difficult to get for the New York Times Magazine, uh, is writing up Waylon's case. And it's going to come out sometime this week after the podcast airs. Look for that story. There hasn't been a lot of detail out there about Waylon and her circumstance. I'm interested to find out more. I'm also interested, perhaps, in raising money for Waylon and her family. So watch this space next week after reading Emily Bazelon's piece in the New York Times this week. And as we find out more about what was done to Jennifer Whalen and her family, we might be launching a little online fundraising campaign to help Whalen with her living expenses while she is in jail, help her family with their living expenses and with any medical bills that may have been incurred. And also to show our support for working class woman in a rural area who did the best she could by her daughter and is being punished for it. And the people who should be punished for it, the politicians and anti-choice activists who forced this suboptimal abortion, this suboptimal choice on Waylon, they're the ones who should be in jail. They're the ones who should be ashamed of themselves. They're the ones who bear responsibility. Blame, blame, please lift it off, please take it off, please make it stop. So the U.S. Senate, the Congress convened last week 
And within the first, what, two or three days, uh, there were four anti-choice bills introduced. Senator David Vitter, Republican from Louisiana, introduced four bills, including a measure that would defund Planned Parenthood. And I don't know if you guys recall, but several years ago, I think during the first big budget showdown, John, John Boehner demanded that President Obama defund Planned Parenthood. And President Obama was like, uh, no, not going to happen. I believe his actual words were uh, when Boehner asked how much money would be cut from that budget. He said zero. Uh, so... It's probable that this bill will pass now that the Democrats are no longer in control of the Senate, but it's also probable that President Obama will veto it. Same goes for the 20-week abortion ban, which uh, was introduced again for, like, I don't even know how many times they've introduced this bill. That bill has passed in several states around the, co- around the country. However, it's wildly unconstitutional. These 20-week bans purport to ban abortion at 20 weeks. However... The law says, um, Roe v. Wade says that women have a constitutional right to choose an abortion up to the point of fetal viability. The point of fetal viability usually is about 24 weeks. So these 20-week bans are unconstitutional. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals found that Arizona's 20-week ban was unconstitutional. And when Arizona appealed it to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court declined to take the case, which means, essentially, they're not trying to hear anything about these 20-week abortion bans up in the Supreme Court. They got better shit to do. (laughs) So that's two bills, defunding Planned Parenthood, their um, 20-week ban. Third is that there's a slate of, a spate of admitting privileges bills that have been sort of sweeping the nation. Admitting privileges bills require that an abortion provider have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Yeah. Usually within 30 miles (laughs) of the, where the abortion is performed. They claim that it's because there are so many complications that arise with abortion and how is the abortion provider going to be able to deal with these complications if they don't have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Well, let me tell you one thing. Abortion is one of the safest procedures. It's rare that the complications arise. The when complications do arise, the pro-life, quote-unquote pro-life contingent really blows them all out of proportion. Um, It's very uncommon. And in fact, childbirth is more dangerous than having an abortion. That is not to say... And I think everyone who otherwise would be giving birth to their children should abort them. That is not the point. The point is simply that it's a very safe procedure. And these requirements that doctors have admitting privileges serve absolutely no medical benefit. Because what happens is, is if you have an abortion complication, you call an ambulance. The ambulance then decides what hospital to take you to. And it may be the local hospital that this doctor, that doctors have admitting privileges at, or it may not. Um, there was a trial about the, this very law in Wisconsin, and the judge basically said, this is all bullshit, it's pointless, stop it. I believe Alabama has a law that was struck down, Mississippi's admitting privileges law was struck down. I believe the only state that it has not been struck down is Texas, um, but don't quote me on that. I believe it's Texas. <clears throat> and finally, the fourth bill that they have introduced is a sex-selective abortion ban. That means they are trying to ban abortion... ban ban people from getting abortions based on the sex of the fetus. So essentially they're trying to prevent women from aborting female babies. That's not a problem in this country. Um, And in fact, these bills are based on the very racist notion that um, certain Asian immigrants bring in this, you know, male child only policy into the country when they, when they immigrate from wherever, from China or Korea or Philippines or what have you. It's racist. It's bullshit. It's not a problem. So stop it. Oftentimes, um, these sex-selective abortion bans will be coupled with a race-selective abortion ban, which is even stupider than the sex-selective abortion ban because I think it'd be really weird for a black woman to have a baby in a room and to be like, oh my God, my baby's black? 
How? I gotta abort this black baby that's in my black body. That's stupid. Stop well, it. what about what about situations like me and my wife? Uh, that baby could be anything. Well, that's actually one of the one of the arguments that have that have been brought up is that um, these laws are sort of are, are are being introduced in order to deal with white women getting impregnated by black men. Oh my! Yeah. Oh my! Listen, yeah. tell you right now, uh, if, if the baby's white, then I'm gonna I'm just gonna. <laughs> You're just gonna stab it. <laughs> I don't know what that was. I don't mean, know like, <laughs> what that I, is, but I think I think this was like yeah. I don't know what that was supposed to be because I'm like that's not how an abortion works. No, it really <laughs> it's not like it's not like you pop the belly like a balloon. You know, <laughs> like, like that's not how in any of this works. But that's what I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I think yeah. This is not, that's not what you know. Listen, apparently, we're, we're, I said it before. I've said I'll say it again. We're very concerned about your uterus. We really would like some control over that. Mm-hmm. If you would just be so kind to allow us to make some rules and regulations. We, we'll stop talking about it, mm-hmm. but just make, let's make some laws. Yeah. Make some rules and laws about like how, how you interact with your own uter- uterus, and then we'll make those, then you follow those laws, and then we'll be fine. Yeah, maybe then everyone will be free. Liberty! Liberty! In the mountains is the freedom Ten states already ban abortions after 20 weeks post-conception. That's a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, which grants women the right to the procedure for several weeks after that, until the point when a fetus is considered viable. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that just one and a half percent of all abortions take place that late in pregnancy. They may be few, but they can be among the most emotionally fraught. Six years ago, Christy Zink and her husband were thrilled to be expecting a second child. All seemed good until her ultrasound at 21 weeks. Her OBGYN noticed something off, so Zink had an MRI. She was shocked to see the image of her baby's brain. It looked like there were on one side almost like splotches like an abstract painting. It did not look like a brain. She says half the brain was basically missing, so were key central nerve fibers. Doctors said the baby would probably have near-constant seizures and might have to live in a hospital. We did not feel like we wanted to bring a baby into the world whose life was going to be about pain and surgery and being hooked up to machines. Zink and her husband had little trouble getting an abortion where they live in Washington, D.C., but she would not be allowed one in most of the 10 states that now ban the procedure at 20 weeks post-conception. Why 20 weeks? This is a point where the humanity of the unborn child is very, very clear. Marjorie Dannenfelser heads the Susan B. Anthony list, which seeks to ultimately end all abortion. She says there's good reason polls show majority support for these bans. Brothers and sisters of a baby that's 20 weeks look at the sonogram. They see the child moving around. Mothers read WebMD, and it says you should be singing to your baby at this point, that she can hear melodies, she can feel rhythms. And she says the fetus can feel pain at 20 weeks. The legislation is called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. But most research disputes that, finding neural connections are not yet developed. So this whole 
bill is based on faulty science. Vicky Saporta of the National Abortion Federation says it's really about politics. They're introducing bans in the states as early as six weeks. They're introducing them at 12 weeks, and they would like us to believe that a 20-week ban is therefore then reasonable. It is not. Hi, thanks for calling the NAF hotline. This is Dina. How can I help you today? The Federation gets 5,000 calls a week to its abortion hotline. Supporta says they hear from many women with no money for the procedure, so they put it off, which makes it even more expensive. Others don't realize they're pregnant until late or are afraid to tell anyone. Dr. Warren Hearn runs the Boulder Abortion Clinic in Colorado. One of the patients that I saw recently had been raped continuously by her half-brother, and who was many months pregnant when her mother discovered that she was pregnant, and they were all quite terrified. The girl was 13. Only Arkansas's ban allows someone in her situation to get an abortion after 20 weeks. The nine other states have no exception at all for rape. Hearn says other women seeking later abortions struggle with substance abuse or mental illness or simply decide they are unfit to be a parent. She's not prepared for that economically or educationally. Uh, She's been abandoned by her partner or she has no support from her parents and she doesn't have the means to raise a child. Well, the vulnerable population that must be considered is the vulnerable child waiting to be born as well. Band supporter Marjorie Dannenfelser says a woman's rights should not trump those of a fetus just to make her life easier. This debate revolves around a group of children who have nothing wrong with them, but the circumstances in their life beyond the womb are very difficult for the mother. Activists are pushing for 20-week abortion bans in at least three more states this year. A House panel in South Carolina approved one unanimously today. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Today is a big day, possibly the biggest day of the year for the anti-abortion movement. This was the scene earlier today on the streets of Washington, D.C. at the annual March for Life. It's timed every year to mark the anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade. And it was supposed to be a triumphant moment for the movement, a day to proudly display their cozy relationship with the new Republican House leadership. In fact, as they marched, Republicans had planned to pass what is essentially a federal post-20-week abortion ban. It was supposed to pass without a hitch, just like it did in the last Congress. But what happened this year was something very different. These protesters from this afternoon 
they're not outside a pro-choice liberal Democrats office. Those protesters are gathered outside anti-abortion Republican Congresswoman Renee Elmer's office. And believe me, they are not happy. A new Congress, a Congress with the highest majority of Republicans in the House in many decades. A Senate now under the leadership of Mitch McConnell. They could not have sent a worse signal to the pro-life community. And they, in essence, are, are getting us to ask the question, why should we work for Republican candidates? Now, the latest dust-up within the new House Republican Caucus comes courtesy of the party's recent troubled electoral history with rape. It all started a couple of weeks ago, according to the National Journal, citing sources who were in the room at the time, when a group of GOP women, including Congresswoman Renee Elmers, Christy Noem, and Cynthia Loomis, approached Majority Whip Steve Scalise about their concerns with the language in the proposed 20-week ban bill. It was sponsored by Congressman Trent Franks. Now, the women reportedly took particular issues specifically with the bill's rape exemption language, which stipulates a woman does not qualify for the exemption from the ban if she has not reported her rape to law enforcement. In other words, in the eyes of this proposed law, the estimated two-thirds of rapes that are not reported to police are not really rapes. A week later, Elmer spoke out about her concerns at the Republican policy retreat, telling the National Journal, quote, we got into trouble last year, and I think we need to be careful again. We need to be smart about how we're moving forward. After that, as many as two dozen other Republicans have raised concerns about H.R. 36, according to the Washington Post. And on Tuesday, Congresswoman Elmers and Jackie Walorski went one step further. Mr. Speaker, I ask unanimous consent to remove myself as a co-sponsor of H.R. 36. Without objection. For what purpose does the gentlelady from North Carolina seek recognition? Mr. Speaker, I ask unanimous consent to remove myself from H.R. 36. Without objection. Even after two women removed themselves as co-sponsors, House leadership remained committed to the bill as drafted. Yesterday in the afternoon, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy told National Journal, quote, we're still planning on moving forward with the bill tomorrow. At a closed-door conference meeting, when according to the Journal, he delivered that message to a room full of Republican women, apparently did not go over well. Marsha Blackburn, a lead sponsor of the bill, reportedly gave a, quote, impassioned speech in Congress, noting that because of the rape clause, the GOP was again fumbling over the sensitive subject. Renee Elmers reportedly repeated her critique, and sources told the Journal that Congresswoman Rolorski left the meeting early. Ultimately, leadership relented on the bill that was once a foregone conclusion. Right now, there is some just breaking news to report tonight out of Washington, a dramatic and very unexpected development in Congress. Late tonight, just within the last few minutes, just since we've been on the air, uh, this has apparently all fallen apart. House GOP abruptly drops plan to debate abortion bill after revolt by GOP women and others. The women in the House Republican Caucus may have scored a huge victory over their overwhelming male colleagues last night, but in the process, they've made themselves a whole new movement of enemies. Joining me now, MSNBC national reporter Erin Carmone, who spent her day in Washington, D.C. at the March for Life. Erin, um, tell me what that scene was like. There was so much fury I saw among conservative anti-abortion organizers, pundits, writers on social media last night directed at Renee Elmers and Marsha Blackburn and Walorski over this, what they perceive as betrayal. What did it, how did it manifest today? There was certainly a lot of anger in the grassroots, but I think that they know that the 20-week ban will be back as the House leadership planned. I mean, on the one hand, this was an enormous show of strength from the GOP women, and I don't want to underestimate that. I want to understate how much it cost them in terms of base votes. 
they have a, this is a group of people that don't want to see any kind of rape exception, let alone a rape exception that involves reporting to the police. And by the way, that rape exception reporting to the police is noxious. One activist told me today that the reason you have to have it in is, she said, get perpetrators off the streets and some women lie about rape. So right. that's really what's at stake here. That said, the vast thrust of the 20-week ban will remain in place. These women have said that they will vote for it. This was not a strong show of solidarity for fellow women beyond the specific optics of rape. So while, yes, it's going to cost them with the base and the people that I talked to today were furious, I think they know that ultimately uh, that they're going to deliver and that this bill is their preferred To include an exception for rape, to not include an exception for rape, which is why they end up doing this over and over. Right. Well, there's a there's a vast daylight between the activists who don't want to see any kind of exception and the average American who, frankly, has kind of internally contradictory views, right. which is to say they suddenly feel like they have more empathy for people who need abortions once you start talking about sexual assault. Um, there are lots of reasons why people get abortions after 20 weeks that also involve desperate circumstances outside of rape. But I think it's important to note that in 2013, when this bill passed, as you pointed out, um, people like Marsha Blackburn sponsored it. They stewarded it With on the With the board. same language. The exact same language. Yes. I feel like I'm the only person who remembers this. It was the exact same language, and no one made any issue of it then. So I'm just a little bit skeptical of this vast uprising of GOP women. Now, some of them are facing really competitive uh, races in 2016. There's going to be a presidential electorate. There's going to be swing districts like Renee Elmer, Elmer's. Uh, North Carolina certainly is a swing state. So they have reason to be afraid. But I think even if this bill were to come back and it would have a broader rape exception, it would still be in a attack on all of the women who need abortions yep. after 20 weeks. And, and what, what is clear, I think, is that we're, we are going to see 20-week ban legislation, and that is going to make its way before this court at some point. That, that, that seems unavoidable. Erin Carmon, thank you very much. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of $5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism and abortion coverage bans. New year, same as the old year, except slightly worse, of course, because the newly GOP-led Congress announced their priorities for the 114th legislative session by uttering the final words of the oath of office, removing their hands from their Bibles, and without so much as pausing, introducing a slate of abortion restrictions. The first vote was scheduled for January 22nd, which marked the 42nd anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the seminal date in reproductive rights. They seem to have either 
zero recognition of history or zero shame. I am betting on the latter myself, given their record over the past couple of decades. Of course, the White House has promised to veto any anti-choice bills that may make it through both House and Senate, but we can't rely forever on the West Wing to be a stopgap for bad laws. And the one that passed last week, H.R. 7, is extremely bad policy. H.R. 7, the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion and Abortion Insurance Full Disclosure Act of 2015, would make federal funding for abortion care double, extra, super secret illegal. It's already on the books thanks to the Hyde Amendment, which gets attached annually to the federal budget to prohibit people insured by Medicaid from using their coverage for abortion care. H.R. 7 would expand that access restriction to absolutely everyone in the country, no matter their insurance provider. Privately purchased plans, employer-provided plans, ACA plans, none would be allowed to offer abortion coverage. So much for the free market. As Emily Crockett reports at RH Reality Check, the medical community who deal daily with patients struggling to afford care are none too happy about HR 7. Hal C. Lawrence, Executive Vice President and CEO of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the group we probably should be listening to on this as they're the experts, expressed his concern, quote, We remain disappointed that the House leadership continues to target abortion by pivoting to pay policies. Medical care must be guided by sound science and the patient's individual needs, not by legislative mandates or financial concerns, unquote. H.R. 7 is making its way to the Senate. You can track its progress at govtrack.us and then use contactingthecongress.org to let your senators know you expect them to vote no when it hits the floor. Even when H.R. 7 is defeated, low-income Americans will still be facing the renewal of the Hyde Amendment. Congress has seen fit to actually pass a budget the last couple of years, which means some GOP legislator will reintroduce Hyde to maintain this punishment of the poor. Disadvantaged Americans have long been on the legislative chopping block, used as tools and talking points by ambitious politicians without fear of reprisal. As the group All Above All says in their letter to end Hyde, quote, it's time to stop abortion coverage restrictions, plain and simple. You can sign their letter to your representatives at allaboveall.org under the Act tab. If you're in a blue state, you have additional power here. Your representatives should be at least check the box pro-choice and movable on this. The president has also revised his language on abortion and come out unapologetically without couch language against H.R. 7. It's time he did the same with Hyde. President Obama can end this continual punishment of low-income and marginalized communities by promising to veto a budget that includes Hyde. The importance of ending coverage bans cannot be overstated. Only 13% of counties in the U.S. even have abortion providers thanks to trap laws. Those are the ones that put onerous and unnecessary regulations on abortion providers in order to force them out of business. The effects of these bans is explained perfectly by Heidi Williamson, the senior policy analyst for the Women's Health and Rights Program at the Center for American Progress and longtime reproductive justice advocate. Quote, we celebrate Roe as a standard and a vision that we must continue to strive for as a nation. All women, regardless of age, gender, income, socioeconomic status, or funding source of insurance, should benefit from its promise. And our fight for justice isn't done until all women have comprehensive reproductive health care, including access to abortion services. 
The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If bodily autonomy and economic justice matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about ending coverage bans via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. People think of pregnant women as weak and vulnerable. But when I was pregnant with my daughter, I felt as if I could put my hand in fire and it would only glow. I never felt alone. There were two of us right there. I didn't think of my child as an embryo or a fetus, medical words that belonged in a textbook or an abortion debate. I thought of her first as a funny little sea creature of indeterminate sex, and later, yes, as a baby, even though she was only a baby in my thoughts. Like many couples, her father and I even had a pet name for her, Winky. (laughs) I wasn't a mother yet, but I was preparing to be one long before she was born. Waiting for the amnio test to come back, I spent a lot of time wondering what genetic anomalies, as we are taught to call them because defects sound so judgmental, I could live with. That is, the baby could live with. Blind, fine, deaf, fine. But what about blind and deaf? Down syndrome, fragile X, Turner syndrome. As it turned out, I was lucky. The test showed nothing abnormal, and I did not have to decide. I didn't even know about the most disastrous possibilities, anencephaly, or organs growing outside the body like some strangling vine. Today, if I'd gotten test results like that and lived in a state that bans abortion after 20 weeks, I might have to travel to a distant state. I would be able to afford it, but what about the women who can't? What happens to them now? Do they have to carry their doomed winky until it dies inside them or go through childbirth for the sake of life? We think we value mothers in America, but we don't. We may revere motherhood, the the hazy abstraction, the cream of wheat with a halo ideal, but a mother is just a kind of woman, after all, and women are trouble and not so valuable. Low-income mothers drag down the country. Why'd they have kids if they couldn't support them? Middle-class mothers are boring frumps. Elite ones are obsessed sanctimommies. Don't they know how annoying they are with their yoga, their cat fights over diapers and breastfeeding, their designer strollers that take up half the sidewalk so that people with important places to go have to take several extra steps? Motherhood is interesting to the larger culture to the extent it can be turned into a sexual fantasy, the MILF, or as a way to set women against one another or to make judgments about them, or as a rationale to limit women's ability to do anything else, or as a way to manufacture that debilitating fog of guilt and anxiety that saps so many women's vitality and confidence. But in itself, taking care of children is not of great interest to the world at large. The work of mothers is so unvalued that a judge in Nebraska, previously a lawyer for Operation Rescue, can deny a 16-year-old in foster care the abortion she wants on the grounds that she isn't mature enough to choose abortion. But apparently she is mature enough to go through pregnancy and childbirth and raise a child. Anybody can do that. Aristotle thought a woman was a deformed man. 
Something had gone wrong in conception. Perhaps the south wind was blowing instead of the more vigorous north. And although we may not believe in women's inferiority consciously anymore, the burden is on the woman if she wishes to participate fully in life, which has been organized around the ideal of the male worker without significant responsibilities at home. The burden is also on her if she has children, voluntarily or not, and if she doesn't have children, because what kind of woman doesn't have children? Also, if she has sex, voluntarily or not. She is the one who has to use contraception and use it right or pay the price for its failure. Are men held up to public scorn for fumbling the condom or not withdrawing in time or, for that matter, assuming that his partner has taken care of birth control already? She is the stupid one, the careless one, the one who forgot for two minutes how easily her body could betray her. It is as if a woman lugs her reproductive system around her like a fur coat in July. She can't be expected to move about freely like a normal person in that hot, bulky garment, but she could take it off, couldn't she, if she really wanted to. Under these conditions, the ability to end a pregnancy is deeper than a right. It is basic self-preservation. Maybe there could be a society in which women were legally compelled to bear every child they conceived and yet did not find themselves thereby hampered, impoverished, trapped, chained to a hated partner, consigned to a lesser life. But that society would look nothing like the one abortion opponents want to bring about which is basically a more retrograde version of our own, with women tied to, for decades to raising children as dependent wives or struggling single mothers. Could there be a society in which having a baby in high school made no difference to a girl's bright future, in which motherhood was such a light role there would no, was no reason not to go along with a random pregnancy because, say, children were raised communally? as in the original Israeli kibbutzim. And fear of being legally connected to the wrong man was not a factor because the woman had complete control over whether he stayed in her life and the child's life, in which pregnancy outside marriage was regarded so benignly and motherhood was so richly rewarded with scholarships, housing, job opportunities, government subsidies, social prestige, and more, that a woman had nothing to lose and much to gain by bearing an accidental baby. It's all starting to sound like some sort of socialist matriarchy, which isn't at all what abortion opponents have in mind. To them, motherhood is more about hatching a baby, less about what comes after. When the little one comes, you'll love it and everything will work out. Meanwhile, here are some secondhand baby clothes. The trouble with this view is not just that a woman can't return to the Prices Pregnancy Center and get help with groceries for her five-year-old or go back to medical school when her baby starts kindergarten. It's that it presents having a child as no big deal. Any woman can do it, even a 12-year-old, and just get on with her life or give the baby up. Once she gives birth, her job is practically done. This cavalier art attitude about childbearing and childrearing is an exaggerated version of the way motherhood is valued or undervalued by society generally. The whole world turns on women's unpaid or grossly underpaid labor, and it always has. When that work is an extension of female domestic roles, caring for children or the elderly, preparing food, cleaning houses, it is ill-paid, insecure, low-skilled, and low-status. But when it is done within the family, it is so deeply mystified and romanticized, so wrapped in religion, morality, tradition, and ideas about what's natural, that it looks like something else, 
a free gift of love, a personal preference, a private arrangement that stands outside the marketplace and cannot be judged by outsiders. And yet, if women rejected labor within the family, society would have to pay enormous sums to replace it. At least elder care is generally recognized to be a personal sacrifice. Some states will even pay relatives a small sum through Medicaid to keep an elderly person out of, out of a nursing home. The social value of motherhood is much more hidden. In fact, it is so obscured that in 2009, Senator John Kyle, Republican of Arizona, tried to strike pregnancy and childbirth from the list of conditions employers had to include in their health plans under the Affordable Care Act. I don't need maternity care, he argued. I think your mom probably did, Senator Debbie Stabenow tartly <laughs> replied. But he continued, so requiring that on my insurance policy is something that I don't need and will make my policy more expensive. The Harvard economist Greg Mankiw also objects to the community rating of maternity care. The goal is to spread the risk of childbirth among the larger community, he wrote on his blog. But having children is more a choice than a random act of nature. People who drive a new Porsche pay more for car insurance than those who drive an old Chevy. We consider this fair, because which car you drive is a choice. Why isn't having children viewed in the same way? Leaving aside the fact that not all childbearing is so voluntary, is a baby like a luxury car? The social value of Porsches is very low. If nobody bought them, or yachts, or diamond-encrusted Rolexes, or Jackson Pollocks, the world would go on much the same. But children are immensely important to everyone, including people who don't have any or want any. They have value both as the children they are, giving meaning and purpose and joy, not just to their parents, but grandparents, aunts, uncles, family friends, to say nothing of empl providing employment for millions of teachers, caregivers, pediatricians, nurses, toy makers, and so on, and also as the adults they become. They are the future, after all. If women stopped having babies, the human race would end. And Mankiw would have no students in his EC 101 class. And if women stopped raising babies to adulthood, usually quite competently, despite the cost to themselves, and without anything remotely like enough support from the community whose costs Mankiw is so worried about, who would do that work? Mankiw trivializes motherhood as a socially useless individual choice. Abortion opponents, who glorify motherhood in the abstract, trivialize it more subtly by making it a question of no choice, of one-size-fits-all one biological fate. They deny its physical risks, its social and economic costs, and its enormous personal consequences. They disregard the individual circumstances and inner life of the pregnant woman. They equate the value of a grown woman with that of a zygote. They entwine childbearing with the very different issues of chastity and sexual continence, and they use the threat of pregnancy to enforce their own repressive so sexual mores. But whether a baby is a free personal choice, or what you get for being a slut, or God's beautiful gift to rape victims, the practical result is the same. Whatever difficulties motherhood entails are the problem of individual mothers. What if we respected pregnancy and childbirth as major physical, psychological, and economic events, as work? There's a reason they call childbirth labor. Making a healthy baby takes effort. It requires foresight and self-denial and courage. It's expensive and demanding and tiring. 
You have to learn new things, change many habits, possibly deal with complicated medical situations, make difficult decisions, and undergo stressful ordeals. I had a wisdom tooth pulled without Novocaine when I was pregnant. It hurt a lot and seemed to go on forever. The kindness of the very young dental assistant holding back my hair as I spat blood into a bowl will stay with me for the rest of my life. Pregnant women do such things and much harder things all the time. For example, they give birth, which is somewhere on the scale between painful and excruciating. Or they have a cesarean, as I did, which is major surgery. None of this is without risk of death or damage or trauma, including psychological trauma. To force girls and women to undergo this against their will is to annihilate their humanity. When they undertake it by choice, we should all be grateful. That there is no way to equalize men's contribution to reproduction is all the more reason to honor women for volunteering to go through it on their behalf. The world must be peopled, Benedict says in Much Ado About Nothing. But the only time we recognize the social value of childbearing is when we are blaming middle-class white women for not doing enough of it. To a far greater degree than most other Western nations, we have decided that women should individually bear most of the consequences of becoming a parent. The sexual puritanism of conservative Christianity meets the conservative libertarianism of Greg Mankiw. Why should I pay for your birth control or your abortion or your baby? Get a husband! The results are all around us. In the highest rates by far of teen pregnancy and teen childbearing in the West, struggling single mothers, downwardly mobile families, child poverty. That this is degrading to women is obvious, but it is also degrading to motherhood. It turns what should be a source of strength and power and recognition into something that renders women weak and dependent, blocks them from full participation in life, undermines their economic standing, and leaves too many poor in old age, if not before. Perhaps that is the point. When you consider the way restrictions on abortion go hand in hand with cutbacks in social programs and stymied gender equality, it is hard not to suspect that the aim is to put women and children back under male control by making it impossible for them to survive outside it. Dallas, Oregon, and in some recent episodes, there were calls at the end where people were talking about teaching religion in school and saying how it would be a good idea to teach religion in school, and didn't. And so what I took from it was they didn't understand why the First Amendment would keep people, would be, why it would be a good idea to apply the First Amendment to keep people from teaching about religions in school, and I guess I was surprised to hear those comments even on the message because it's completely missing the point. First Amendment is protecting you, saying all of us, from the government teaching a particular religion, endorsing a particular religion. There's no problem about any public institution of teaching a comparative religions course to go over what religions in the world teach. But the problem is if the school actually talks about one particular religion as being the religion or taking one religion's viewpoint. That's what you're not allowed to do. And there has never been an argument against 
teaching a comparative religions course at a public school. I guess that's all I have to say. Hey Jay, it's Dave here from Canada. Uh, just listened to the private or the uh, privacy podcast you put out. Great episode. Uh, I was quite impressed by it. I have to confess, I'm, I've definitely in the past used the argument that hey, you know, we, you don't need to worry so much about stuff because you probably got nothing to hide. And yeah, I definitely got got smacked a bit with, with that one. Realized you know it's probably not the best argument to be using, and opened my mind a lot more. But uh, I never used it in like a, you know, the right wing, we need to know what the bad guys are doing kind of thing. Really, my beef with too much privacy is more that it always gets applied on a power basis. So privacy laws that protect you and me are going to protect those in power much more. Like uh, Martin Luther King was mentioned in your podcast. Well, you can compare and contrast Martin Luther King's experience of privacy versus Herbert Hoover's experience of privacy to see exactly where it leads. You know, at the end of the day, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates are going to have much more privacy than me, as is the president, uh, the prime minister up here in Canada. You know, they have access to much more privacy. They can protect theirs legally. They're going to be able to do more because they have more money, more power. So when we put privacy laws in and when we try and protect our privacy, we we need to recognize it's progressive, that we are also creating a structure for the powerful to protect themselves. You know, with perf- if per- privacy was protected perfectly, Donald Sterling's comments about black people don't get out, and he still gets protected by the legal system. And that's my one problem, I guess, with pushing privacy too far. I feel like we need to leave some leeway there for the less powerful to hold the powerful to account. And I realize that even in that, you know, the powerful is still going to get tools against us. You know, they're going to use those loopholes we we need to attack people like Martin Luther King. That's just the way it's going to go. And I, I, I recognize there's a lot of room for debate there. But that's just where I think, I think we do need to keep in mind that when we push privacy, we're also giving the powerful one more tool to protect themselves. And at the end of the day, as we saw with the NSA, they will ignore the law. They will look if they want to look. So maybe we need to make sure that we protect ourselves a bit and look at the powerful back. Uh, great podcast as always, bro. Uh, I got to run. We're supposed to be uh, having a baby today. So have a good one, bro. And I'll uh, see you next time. Bye. Hey, Jace. Neil. I've been talking to a lot of friends and I've been, you know, about the the Ferguson and the, the police abuse and the shootings. And, you know, there's a topic that comes up in my circle, but I haven't heard it on your station or the Young Turks or any of the other liberal talk shows that for, basically for the incentive of why police officers, when they shoot unarmed people, that they immediately kill. You know, they go for the kill shot, and that, you know, and... There's a very logical explanation behind it that I've heard police officers that I know that are friends of mine explain to me, which is that if the person that you shot is unarmed or if you intend to shoot somebody, the intent is to kill because if that person is alive, then they can be, you know, come at you in court, you know, cause lots of grief for you as a police officer if you did shoot somebody. So the intent is to kill 
not because you know uh, they hate or anything like that, but if they feel that their life's in, in danger, then executing you is the only way out to protect their future and for their present. So it's a, a, a hand-in-hand thing. Like if I let this person live, like the Castle Doctrine in Florida, when somebody comes into your house, you can't shoot them in the leg and let them live. Call the cops, and then when the cops come. They, you know, they take a police report. They, t- they take the man to jail because then he can turn and sue you for shooting him in the leg. So what you have to do in that scenario, with, and cops in Florida would tell you, if you have an intruder in your house, the best thing to do is to execute that person, which to me is insane. But that's what it promotes. That's the incentive. That if I let this person live, now that jeopardizes my life. So I, if I if I do pull that trigger, they ha- I have to end that life because it's going to endanger me. And I haven't, like I said, I haven't heard any of that being discussed on the news or on any of the local networks. So uh, that's just a thought, man. Uh, peace and love. Continue the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I just want to respond real quickly to the last caller we heard from Neil. Uh, you know, first of all, I have no doubt that he has heard exactly what he described from, you know, personal friends of his or police officers. You know, there's certainly all kinds of mental processes and incentives in place that could cause a person to do as he described you know if you're gonna if you're gonna shoot someone shoot to kill because it's you know a sort of a roundabout way of covering your own ass i just didn't want to leave that out there as the only explanation for for why uh, police may do what they do this isn't like a you know one side says this and the other side says this and we'll never know the real answer i just want to also throw out the official explanations for you know what the police say as to why they have the training that they do uh, the first is that you know theoretically if you're using your gun then it is absolutely dire that you do that is you know the the circumstance is so grave that you have decided to use your gun i mean of course that's not how it plays out generally but in a hypothetical if a police officer is using their gun then they absolutely positively have to stop an, you know, an incredibly dangerous individual. And in that circumstance, aiming for, you know, the, the, a person's trunk rather there than the extremities is a higher probability way of stopping a person in their tracks. The other explanation, which as a, you know, pansy liberal, uh, I like a little bit more is that if you aim for the extremities, like it's a nice idea but it increases the likelihood that you will miss. And, you know, and so that's just like makes a dangerous situation not any better if you're not able to stop the person. But if you miss the dangerous person because you're aiming for the extremities, then you have a higher likelihood of also hitting an innocent bystander. And, you know, so does this mean that one explanation is right and the other is wrong? No, not at all. I, I see no reason why these can't coexist peacefully. I just wanted to make sure that more more explanations were thrown out there than just like you know as as if the voicemail sort of explained everything like the the training is actually there they actually do sort of train shoot to kill and there are reasons for that that are not monstrously evil 
Secondly, today, just a couple of reminders on what I started asking you favors about in the previous episode. Podcast awards are, are happening right now. Uh, the nomination process is happening. So if you would, please go to podcastawards.com, nominate Best of the Left in the Best Produced category. I would very much appreciate it. I would love to uh, be in the running for that this year. And then secondly, I'm a huge fan of the show The Good Fight. I highly recommend that you just go check it out, subscribe to it, hear some of their back episodes, and then recognize that they are running a Kickstarter fundraiser right now. And so they have a little bit more than a week to go on that. Podcast awards have a little bit uh, right, right around a week until the nomination process is closed. So check out both of those things and you know take a little bit of time to throw some support towards some high-quality progressive podcasts. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories and wonder